In today's episode, we pick back up the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6, starting with verse 30 through the end of the chapter 56. Exhausted from ministry, Jesus and his disciples seek rest, but they are besieged by the demanding crowds. As evening falls with no provisions in sight, Jesus performs a mass feeding of over 5,000 people using mere scraps of food. He then retreats alone to the mountain before then miraculously walking upon the sea to join his beleaguered disciples. And their reactions shift from terror to awe as the wind ceases at his approach. And then upon landing, Jesus is immediately inundated by the sick yearning to just touch his cloak. Human desperation relentlessly pursues him, but it encounters divine compassion and his power at every turn. Good morning and blessed All Saints Day. Today is Wednesday, November 1st, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word, where each weekday morning we explore the holy scriptures through which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Thy Strong Word is brought to you in part by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. You can learn more about their translating and publishing work on their website at lhfmissions.org. Also, we're live this morning, so feel free to call in with your comments or questions to 800-730-2727. You can also email them to me at pastorboo at gmail.com or send me a Facebook message. I'll try to get your question or your comment out on the air. But for now, let's welcome our guest for this morning to help us unpack the rest of Mark chapter 6. It's the Reverend Roger Mullet. He's the pastor of Prince of Peace Lutheran Church in Buffalo, Wyoming. Good morning, Pastor Mullet, and welcome back to the program. Thank you. Grateful for the opportunity to be with you again. Well, I'm excited to have you here, too. We have a lot to cover today, so really there's nothing to do but just jump right into it. But before we even do that, would you start our time together in prayer? Let us pray. Gracious Lord, as you once provided for the people with healing, feeding, and peace, so provide for us the same healing, feeding, and peace as you nourish our faith with word and sacrament according to your good and gracious will. And on this All Saints Day, help us to look forward with that strengthened faith and open eyes to that great and glorious day when we, with all the faithful, will join you at the marriage feast, which has no end. In your holy name. Amen. Amen. Well, as we begin, I think it's important that we jump back to Mark chapter 6, verses 7 through at least 13, because we ended on the death of John the Baptist, which seems to be something that Mark was recalling as he's telling the story of Jesus sending out the 12 apostles. It's verses 7 through 13 that begins the narrative that we're going to pick up today. Uh, Anything else that folks should know uh, before we move on to our text? It is an interesting little intervening thing there with John the Baptist, Um, but all three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three of them place this little episode of John the Baptist versus King Herod right in the same place as the feeding of the 5,000. So I I have a few different theories that bounce around, but um, it's important that those two things go together for whatever the reason may be. But as you said, even backing up further, Jesus has sent out the 12. Um, This this parallels a little bit, in fact, um, Jesus sending out even the 70, and that's a unique thing to Luke's gospel, um, but that he sends them out in his name with his authority to do these things. And now, as we begin the text at hand in verse 30, that's what the apostles are returning from. They've been out preaching and healing and, and proclaiming the kingdom in Jesus' name. 
Indeed. So they have just come back. We're going to pick up with verse 30. Here we go. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages to buy them something, or buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. Let's pause right there in the middle of verse 37. Uh, Just getting started, we see the apostles return, and they're telling Jesus all the things that had happened. Uh, Do we have any indication of how long it's been since they've been out doing those things before they returned to Jesus? Not much. Uh, There's really (laughs) not much at all. Uh, And even when you read the other Gospels, um, because Matthew and Luke both have some version of this same thing, where he sends out the twelve um, in pairs to go and preach and teach and heal in his name. But there's, there's not really a great indication. Um, I think Matthew has the longest, uh, kind of explanation of what they're doing. That's where you get the, um, he who receives you receives me and that sort of thing. That's all in Matthew's parallel to this, but there's not really a good indication here. Um, the most important thing really is that when they return, he immediately draws them away, just he and them together. Um, and and we're going to see this multiple times through the end of the chapter, that the people just keep coming to Jesus, um, that they just keep coming. I think this is a great little passage here, come away by yourselves, for us as pastors to remember that as Jesus cares for the 12, so also he cares for us, and that we as pastors need to remember the importance of coming away by ourselves with Jesus uh, in prayer and and in the study of God's word and so on. Um, and, and Jesus himself, of course, withdraws multiple times. Um, that's something you pick up more so in Luke's gospel than in Mark's gospel. Um, but Jesus does this himself as well, comes away to pray. And that, that sort of nourishment that he uh, at least attempts to give to the 12 before the crowds come uh, is an important reminder that that you know the twelve are fed before they feed the crowds, and so it ought to be for us as pastors as well. I think that's an excellent point for sure. And and you know the fact is, as you said already, everywhere Jesus goes, there are people clamoring around him. People with their own illnesses, people with their own afflictions, people with their own demons, and they're hearing about Jesus's ability to cast out or heal these ailments. And so, yeah, they're always being inundated. But many people look at this and they they say, well, you know, Jesus could have set up a station right here and just healed everybody that came to him. And that's true. Or they may be critical of the event and say, well, look at Jesus turning all these people away by leaving them. How many people did he leave unhealed? And I, I think when we look at his miracles, including the miracle that's about to happen, oftentimes I think we get distracted with the miracle as opposed to what it is saying about Jesus. Uh, Take us a little bit through that. Like, why can we defend Jesus and even his disciples for taking time for themselves when so many people around them need only what Jesus can provide? 
Yeah, that is a tricky thing. And we see the reaction of the crowds, even in some places, depending on the miracle or or what's going on in the Gospels, the crowds react that way too. It's a very human reaction to kind of begin to wonder why, why doesn't he just heal everybody? And why doesn't he, you know, and so on, uh, just as you said. And I think it's important for us to remember a couple of things. First is that, frankly, nowhere in the Bible is there a promise of temporal healing or satisfaction. All of those sorts of promises are always attached to the other side of earthly life, which is eternal life in the new creation. And the second thing is that we have to remember the kind of the layer of revelation, if you will, um, by which I mean the layer of revealing who Jesus is that sits behind these miracles. All these miracles, of course, happened in time and space, and the people who received them really did receive those benefits. But there is also a greater revealing of Jesus going on behind here, where we're beginning to see who Jesus is. That all of these miracles really are just temporal things to point us forward to the greatest miracle, which is the death and resurrection that we also will experience because of Jesus' death and resurrection. So we find them here out in the middle of, well, nowhere, for instance. It's a desolate place. The hour is late, and the disciples, well, they uh, they make some good sense. They tell Jesus, send all these people away. Tell them to go. They need to eat. I think it's fascinating how if we look at it and we're generous, we can give a little credit to the disciples for really being concerned about the physical welfare of these people. I don't know. Perhaps they were also just a bit annoyed. But we have in verse 37, Jesus answered them, you give them something to eat. And as we continue our text, they protest. They said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And Jesus said to them, well, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, five and two fish. And he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven. He said a blessing and he broke the loaves. He gave it to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish and those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. So interesting that the disciples do seem to have some concern for the people. Now, I, obviously, these are not nice guys. They're not like bad guys. I think sometimes the disciples get a bad rap because they don't always understand Jesus's message. It doesn't mean they're heartless guys. With that said, though, they can be selfish as we are. Um, I'm not sure exactly what motivates their, ult, uh, their uh, overall concern. But uh, they, they, they tell Jesus to have these people go and find something for themselves to eat. Um, why doesn't Jesus do that? Why, why do, and why does he say, you give them something to eat? Because then they're like, well, wait a minute, that's going to be a lot of money. Take us through that. Yeah, it's, uh, it is kind of interesting. And you mentioned kind of a twofold thing, right? That they're, they are concerned, and I think they're concerned, and I think they see Jesus concern for them back in verse 34. He has compassion because they're like sheep without a shepherd. Uh, I think they do see that and they recognize the need. Um, it's possible that they're annoyed. Uh, they might want Jesus to themselves for a little while because that was the intention all the way back in verse 31. Um, and they had no leisure themselves even to eat. But I think it's also much more simply, they realize what a task this is. These people are going to need to eat and there is just not a chance 
that we could come up with enough money or enough bread to feed them all. I think Jesus answers, you give them something to eat, both as a little bit of a test um, to see if they've started to catch on yet as to who Jesus is, um, but so also, I think, to foreshadow what is about to happen very precisely. It will, in fact, be the disciples who give them something to eat. Um, so I think there's a few layers going on there. And of course, they find the loaves and the fish, and um, and there's a lot of neat details in these next few verses, but uh, but you're the host. I'll defer to you. <laughs> no, no, no. Take us where you want to take us. Uh, but I do want to point out something that I, I think might be important. And he, when he has compassion on them back in verse 34, it says that they were like sheep without a shepherd. Um, I, I get the sense that, you know, we have Moses, for instance, back in Numbers. He's praying for someone to replace him after his death so that the people will not be left as sheep without a shepherd. It's picked up in Ezekiel where God promises that his servant David will shepherd his people. Here is Jesus, and he's looking at the people, and the source of his compassion is that they have no shepherd. And and I, I wonder if, thinking out loud, you know, this is not only a foreshadowing of the immediate thing that happens, that is that the disciples are the ones who physically distribute and, and, and receive back the abundance, but also that he will be sending them out to be shepherds to the people in his absence, just, just as back in Numbers, Moses was looking for someone to replace him. That Numbers connection is such a great connection um, because, you know, what do we have in Numbers? We have the wandering in the wilderness, right? That's exactly what's happening here. Three times this place is called desolate, right? And with the, with the shepherd language too, I would like to invoke a psalm, everybody's psalm, right? We all know this one. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. This is one of the reasons, in fact, that I, I think Mark's telling, I might change my mind next week, I think Mark's <laughs> telling of the 5,000 might be my favorite telling of it, because um, the 5,000 does show up in all four Gospels. It's the only miracle in all four Gospels. Um, but I, I do think Mark's telling is my favorite, because we have, they were like sheep without a shepherd. First of all, how does Jesus answer that? He teaches them. He gives them his word. That's how we guide people when they are like sheep without a shepherd. They need the word of God first and foremost. Um, but then you have, he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. It's this place that we have called desolate three times. Jesus himself calls it desolate. Then it's described as desolate. And then the disciples say it's a desolate place. But now suddenly when the people sit down in the presence of the good shepherd, he maketh me to lie down in green pastures. And that's a, that's a uniquely Markan detail there. Um, the other thing I want to pick up that Mark is doing here is he, they sit down in groups twice. He commands them to do it in verse 39, and then they actually do it in verse 40. And both times you miss something, unfortunately, in the English that's there in the Greek. In verse 39, he, they sit down in groups, and in Greek it says symposia, symposia, group by group. But... If anyone's familiar with either of our seminaries in Fort Wayne or in St. Louis, they have an annual gathering called a symposia, where pastors and lay people get together to enjoy fellowship and to talk theology and to hear presentations by professors and many other teachers of the church. And in the second one, it's even better. They sit down in groups. It's a different word, but it's unique to Mark. Prosei, prosei, which means garden plot by garden plot. So what Jesus does 
is he sits them down, he plants them in hundreds and fifties, almost like he's planting little congregations. And then he's going to break the bread and send his disciples, as you just said, to be shepherds to those little planted groups. I just sort of reflecting on everything you're saying, you know, that hundreds and fifties reminds me of the hundreds, thousands, and of hundreds and of fifties and of tens that uh, Moses used to divide up the leadership of his people uh, when he was called to be in charge of them. But reflecting back to unjust, you know, Jesus is making a good order of things, but also really connecting them to, well, salvation history. And my question is, as I'm thinking it out, is that we who have the luxury of time, the luxury of research, the luxury of the cloud of witnesses that has come before us, you know, we can make these connections a little easier. Uh, the people who are in the midst of it, I don't imagine that the 5,000 are really making these connections, or are they? Or what about the disciples? What do you think? Oh, I think over and over and over again, we see the disciples not quite getting it. Um, in fact, there's a reference in John's gospel to the disciples not understanding anything that he's doing until after the resurrection, and then it all kind of falls into place. Um, we, we do get the indication that this particular crowd um, is, is most likely uh, Jews, um, and that's, that's an, sort of found in, not only in the, the numbers that are used to describe the episode, but in the, in the other gospels as well. We get the indication that this is a crowd of Jews, by which I simply mean a crowd of people that most likely have some familiarity with what we now call the Old Testament. But as with so many things, and this is again, such a human thing, that we, we don't usually figure it out until afterwards, right? It's not, um, you know, nobody's sight is truly 2020 until, of course, hindsight is 2020. Um, I guess more than anything, um, it makes me think of so often we get this idea that how, how much easier would it be for us to believe if we were in those crowds or if we could have followed Jesus around or if we could have been there and seen it with our own eyes um, but this is one of those times when we really can take a step back as Christians and say, we have both testaments before us. We have the promised Holy Spirit who has been sent to open our eyes to see the scriptures and to understand them. We have different challenges and, and perhaps even more difficult challenges than the apostles might have faced. But I think this idea that you know, I was born in the wrong generation or it would have been easier to be a Christian back then or, or what have you. I think that misses, I think that misses a little bit of something um, mm -hmm. where, you know, God, God made you a Christian precisely in the generation you belong in. He made you a Christian for this generation on purpose, or he made you a pastor for this generation on purpose or what have you. Um, and of course, when we see these connections, I mean, thanks be to God that he's mm -hmm. opening our hearts and our minds by the Holy Spirit that we might find him in the scriptures and see that this is the same good shepherd who provided in the wilderness all the way back in numbers, who provides for the wilderness in, in, um, you know, these early thirties AD in and around Jerusalem and the same good shepherd who provides for us in our wilderness, even today. Indeed, you know, and, and the other thing that stands out to me as I'm looking back on it is also how seemingly imperceptibly Jesus does this miracle. It's not a grand display or a grand show. They sit down in groups by hundreds and fifties. And it just says in 41, 
They take the five loaves, the two fish. He looks up to heaven. He says a blessing. Everything's normal up to this point. He broke the loaves, very normal, gives them to the disciples to set before the people, and he divided the two fish among them all. And they all like, so, so Mark doesn't make a big deal out of the numbers of the fish or the numbers of the loaves. He doesn't make a big deal out of, you know, Jesus held them up and made sure everybody was watching or any of that. He kind of does this very imperceptively. The people receiving those uh, gifts of the 5,000, which we know would be far more because that's just basically the men, women, and children weren't numbered. So we have this grand group. They're really just seeing the work of the disciples, not Jesus. Another foreshadowing. Isn't that remarkable? I know this sequence, of course, in terms of a meal, right, is very, very common. Um, This would be a similar sequence, of course, to a Passover meal where you take up the bread and you look to heaven and you say the blessing and then you break it and distribute it and so on. And of course, we should hear a foreshadowing of the Lord's Supper there as well with that same sequence of, of verbs, takes the bread, looks to heaven, says the blessing, breaks the bread and so on. Um, it's precisely the same little sequence that we find in Mark 14 with the Last Supper. Um, but I think what you're getting at is even more significant, that nobody actually watches it happen. Right. It just kind of happens, um, which is a reminder for us that our Lord not only works through means um, that and humble means at that, that, you know, frankly, outside looking in, watching a baptism is not particularly spectacular. There's not a laser light show and the child being baptized does not usually glow or anything like that afterwards. Um, It really is just water, but it's the water combined with the word of God. And so it is with the Lord's Supper. It really is just bread and wine, except it's the bread and wine combined with the word of God to deliver the very body and blood of Jesus. And so it is here as well. And you have that foreshadowing, right? Who are the congregations, if you will, these little hundreds and fifties, who are they actually interacting with? Well, it's not really Jesus directly. It's the disciples that he sends. And so it is for our congregations, right? We have this tendency, I think, and I think this is just kind of an American or maybe Western Christianity sort of thing to do, to seek out a grand experience or to have an encounter with the Lord and so on. Uh, and to seek after those things, even as the crowds are in our texts today. But it's important to remember that God, again, works through means. It's so rare in the scriptures for someone to interact face-to-face with Jesus apart from his earthly ministry. But after that, it's all according to where he has promised to be. He's promised to be there for us in word and sacrament. And we as Lutherans, of course, we cherish the Augsburg Confession particularly Uh, with regard to pastors, Article 5, that tells us that pastors are part of God's plan of bringing his means of grace, of bringing forgiveness and life and salvation to the people. You're not interacting with Jesus face-to-face. You're interacting with your pastor. But we can take heart and rejoice because it's the pastor, not the man, but the office that Jesus has sent to his church on earth to deliver those good gifts in the stead by the command and using, not our own words, We don't make up the words of institution every week. We use the words of Jesus because that's where the power is to heal and to save. You know, you were talking about how, you know, God is, and Jesus in this case, God is doing these amazing things uh, in in ordinary ways, sometimes imperceptible, like the water of baptism, even the bread and wine of the Lord's Supper. Well, even back then, 
And I imagined in my head, I imagined being one of the crowd that goes home and they're like, Hey, you know, how was it? Did you meet the, did you see the Jesus guy? And, and they're just like, I was okay. I mean, I guess he handed out some bread and the bread was fine, I guess. But see, because they don't know what is behind the scenes. And when modern Christians, as you mentioned, say, well, if I was back there with Jesus's day, well, they're always assuming that they're St. Peter or St. Mary Magdalene. You know, they never imagine themselves as being like the guy in the back of the 5,000. But yet Jesus cares about him, too. And yet he's fed too, you know? So I, I think that's also reflective of our society today. We, we seek these grand experiences, but even if you were there in the day of Jesus, you still would very unlikely get to witness some amazing thing. It's still all happening by faith. Yeah. Isn't that something that's a really interesting point to make? Cause you're, I think you're absolutely right. When we picture ourselves in that day, we almost always put ourselves among the 12 of course. Almost always. We we forget that, you know, I mean, just by sheer statistics, you're not one of the 12, right? Mathematically, that's just not likely at all. Um, and yet, right? And yet Jesus still feeds you, doesn't he? Even if you're not one of the 5,000 men that was counted, but one of the women or the children that mm -hmm. went along, right? I mean, if you count the women and children, we're closer to 10, 15, maybe even 20,000 people. Um, and that's just assuming one child per household, right? right? And and when you when you really ponder it that way, that you're in the crowd, that you know you probably were not sitting in the front row, and watching the baskets just keep refilling themselves, or however exactly it happened in time and space, but you still received it, didn't you? That's right. You still get the fruit of Jesus' work, and so it is for us, right? There is very little about our worship services and about word and sacrament that is um, spectacular in the eyes of the world. Outside looking in, it's, it's, it's frankly quite plain. Even, even if you have uh, a maybe what we might call a higher church sort of celebration, and there is beauty there with, with mm -hmm. extra vestments or, or, or processions or things like that. Certainly those things add to the beauty of the service. Um, but still, outside looking in, it looks kind of ordinary and frankly it looks kind of odd yeah um, I, I think that's it too said, it, it just it looks you know and, and that's the thing you know if your church really and again I, i'm making some general statements here so please forgive me in advance but my thought has always been if, if your church is exactly what you're getting everywhere else then it's not really doing a great job and i'm not talking about even liturgies and that sort of thing i'm just talking about if you're not giving the people what uniquely Christ came to give them, that is, of course, the message of the gospel, if you're not training people up in the fear and knowledge of the Lord through the law, if you're not you know, distributing the gifts according to Christ's institution, then what's the point of going to church at all? And the unbeliever will come to church and see those things and go, what's the point of going to church for it? But that's where the difference in faith, because there's going to be people in the crowd who are getting fed by Jesus who have no clue what's going on. But then there are going to be plenty of people who have still not seen Jesus because he's so far up front, and yet they've heard the message, they've heard what's happened, and they go and they say, yeah, I had the same bread as Joe, and he said there was nothing much to it, but I can tell you this is the story behind it. Now, next thing you know, you're sharing Christ with others because you're, 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 you're excited. You're happy to see that you've encountered uh, God himself.
I'll tell you what, we're going to learn more about that and see what happens next as Jesus goes to walk on the water. But we have to take a break for just a few messages. Don't go anywhere. Pastor Mullet and I will keep on going when we come back. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan 316. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo, and with me this morning is the Reverend Roger Mullet. He's the pastor of Prince of Peace Lutheran Church in Buffalo, Wyoming, and we're talking the Gospel of Mark. Now, before we head back into text, I just want to remind you yet again that if you have any feedback, questions, or comments, you can reach out to me by email at pastorboo at gmail.com. You can also find me on Facebook, or you can call into the studio, 800-730-2727, any of these methods can get your question or your comment out on the air. Pastor Mullet, coming back to the text, I'm eager to jump right back into the, the word and into the next section where Jesus walks on the water. But I want to make sure there's nothing else we need to uh, make the people aware of before we move on. I think verse 45 begins with immediately. So let's go for it. Let's do it immediately. Of course, there's a good chance of that in Mark anyway. But here we go. Immediately, Mark says. Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida. And when, while he dismissed the crowd, after he had taken leave of them, Jesus went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and they cried out for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and he said, take heart. It is I do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased and they were utterly astounded for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Okay. Stopping there at the end of 52. So Mark's telling of this is, there's two things that stand out to me, which I suspect are important. Uh, Maybe they're not. Maybe you'll tell me, nope, nope, not important. But (laughs) one, I've never really noticed before, I guess I've never thought about it deeply before, the fact that he meant to pass them by. So I hope you're going to come to that. Uh, he, He was walking, he wanted to sneak past them, but didn't. That's curious. And then, of course, at the end, um, they were astounded at what was happening But then Mark says, because they didn't understand the loaves. So we're definitely going to have to make our way to make some sense of that. But let's start at the top. So he made his disciples get into the boat. 
but he sends them off on their own. He heads up to the mountain. I guess start there. Yeah, and that immediately, as you mentioned, is a very, very Markan word, isn't it? Um, everything seems to happen immediately in Mark's gospel. Um, but that also does tie it right back to the 5,000. And, you know, as we were as we were kind of finishing right before the break, we began to get at this idea that Jesus reveals himself in the years of his earthly ministry in very Old Testament ways. Uh, lots of Old Testament parallels just by virtue of what he's doing, feeding people with bread in the wilderness, for example. Um, and I think that's going to be important here in this next little bit as well. We kind of mentioned how moving forward to our own day and age, that the way that Jesus is revealed is humbler. It's more hidden, if you will, and that can make it difficult for us. But when we look back to what Jesus does in the scriptures during his years of earthly ministry, so many of these miraculous things are meant to do precisely that, to make it clear to the disciples who this Jesus really is. So he tells the disciples in the wake of the feeding of the 5,000, get into the boat, go to the other side over to Bethsaida, and he dismisses the crowd, and he goes up on the mountain to pray, one of those few times that we get it very specifically that he's alone praying, um, that he's up on the mountain. Of course, you can make lots of mountain connections through the Gospels and all the way back in the Old Testament as well. What's really remarkable is he sees them making headway painfully. The wind is against them. Okay, So if he's up on the mountain, if we do a little geography and they're out on the lake, we're talking probably multiple miles here. And it's the fourth watch of the night, which is between 3 and 6 a.m. So it's also about as dark as it's going to get. We're multiple miles away, and it's dark, and he sees that they're making headway painfully. Um, just a nice little reminder, when you put those things on a map of who it is that we're dealing with, it is, in fact, God in the flesh. Um, but then, as you said, he came to them walking on the sea, and he meant to pass by them. What an odd thing. What an odd little it thing. Is. Um but I think this is, it. I think it really does fit into what we've already spoken about and the way that Jesus reveals himself in kind of, frankly, not new ways. If you know the Old Testament, everything that happens in the Gospels has kind of happened before. I think he means to pass by them precisely because that's what God does in the Old Testament when he reveals who he right. is, when he lets Moses see his backside and so reveals who he is. That's Exodus 33, 34. Um, God also does this to Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 19, that part of who God is, right, that there is, even though Jesus, of course, is God in the flesh and in his humility and his humbleness walking among us, which is precisely what God has always desired to do from the very beginning. Nevertheless, in our sinfulness, there is still a little bit of a separation there between what is sinful and what is holy, right? We, we also remember from the book of Numbers that no sinner can look on the face of God and live, right? So there is nevertheless a little bit of a distinction there, which is why there's, I think, a little separation why God passes by in the Old Testament to remind them, I am God with you. And yet there are some extra steps that need to be taken here so that my glory doesn't overwhelm you and kill you. And I think that's what we're hinting at here. When Jesus means to pass by, he means to say, I am the God who passed by Moses. Mm. I am the God who passed by Elijah, just as I'm the God who fed the Israelites in the wilderness. Uh, and I think that's how we tie all these things together. Of course, they don't get that. 
Um, no, no. They think, well, they think it's I, a ghost, and they still don't understand about the loaves and, you know, pretty typical disciples here. But uh, but jumping in on the passing by, you know, Mark does talk about it in a way like he attempted something but couldn't do it. Like he meant to pass them by, but they caught him. Um, if we connect those things back as you were to, and rightly so, I think, to Exodus 33 through 34, 1 uh, Kings 19, we make those connections. I think it reveals something to us, definitely in hindsight, but their fear that he was a ghost always comes up, uh, well, whenever it's read, because the question is, what is a ghost, (laughs) right? And I don't want to belabor it, but I mean, it is, after all, the day after Halloween, so it might be worth talking (laughs) about when it talks about a pneuma here, an apparition, a ghost, what did they think they were seeing? Like, how would they have defined pneuma yeah, in this Isn't that context? interesting? Well, so if I remember correctly, and of course I don't have it right here in front of me, I, I knew that was going to happen. Um, I think the word for ghost here is actually the weird one. Phantasma? Um, I'm pretty sure here it's phantasma, which is oh. only here and in Matthew 14 in the parallel passage where Matthew tells the same story. And, and that makes it even harder. Because if the word was pneuma, right, or panuma, if you like your silent P on the front, um, right, then we're talking about spirit. It's the kind of that general word that's also applied to the Holy Spirit with the appropriate adjectives attached to it, of course. It's a much more general word. It's that same word, in fact, uh, pneuma, that Jesus uses in Luke uh, 24 when he appears to the disciples and says, give me something to eat so that I can demonstrate to you that I'm not one of these. Um, but what does it mean that they think he's a ghost? I mean, if you say phantasma, you can kind of just hear to it. just to right. affirm you. Yeah, it is phantasma. I looked it up, so there you go. Oh, good. Yes, oh, correct. thank you. Thanks. Um, you can kind of hear, of course, right? We get the English word phantom, at least in part, from that Greek word. You can kind of hear that, um, and I think really, it's something much more sinister. Um, you know, spirit is usually usually a pretty positive thing in the Bible, uh, at least. I I wouldn't be able to speak with any authority on other classical Greek stuff. Um, But pneuma is usually pretty positive in the New Testament. Um, But this phantasma, with it being unique, uh, that this word, again, only appears in this episode and in the parallel passage in Matthew 14, I think it's something much more sinister. Um, And, you know, on the tail end of Halloween and now on this day, when the church mm. commemorates all saints and remembers those who have gone before us in the faith. I mean, all these questions about contacting the dead and and all those sorts of things kind of come to the forefront of people's minds whenever we're talking about those who have gone before us and heaven and what exactly is it like after you die and things like that. I think I think this is I think they're terrified for a reason. Um that, I, that part I really makes a lot of sense because they cry out. They're afraid. We have other places in the Bible where we have to wrestle like Peter's angel and that kind of stuff. I, I think you are absolutely right. I can definitely get on board because of their fear. I mean, they cried out for help. So they see him. They think it's uh, either a bad, perhaps a bad omen, an evil spirit, a demonic or whatever their definition of ghost is. Because, you know, again, they don't have perfect understandings of yeah. the world at this point. So, so in either case, they're very afraid and they're terrified. Well, we've been digging into the Greek there. Why don't we dig into the Greek a little bit in what Jesus responds? Because he says, take heart, I am, and me, and yeah. go. Do oh, not be afraid. Oh, how great is that? 
Right. How great is that? So this is, um, if you are familiar with any more of that Greek, you have that ego, Amy, here it's Amy, ego, right? Um, this is a very, right. uh, very common phrase in John's gospel, especially. Um, but it does show up at these key moments in other places like here. And what this goes back to, it is the Greek for I am. And um, the very emphatic I am meant to, I think, in all of the uses in the Gospels, really, whenever Jesus says this, I think he is meaning to call us all the way back to Exodus 3, where God reveals his name to Moses in the burning bush. And it's hard to translate exactly in Hebrew and in Greek. It's kind of hard to figure out what exactly he's trying to say, except for in the burning bush, he says, I am. And here in Greek, he says, I am. And I think that's part of it. He's revealing, look, I'm the same God that was in the burning bush. I'm the same God that passed by Moses, the same God that fed the Israelites in the wilderness. I'm the same God who, as we're about to find out, has power over all creation because, frankly, I made it. Um, the other thing that we pick up on here is, of course, do not be afraid, right. which might give us a little hint into what the disciples think they're looking at. Where else do we hear, do not be afraid, do not be afraid? That is always, without fail in the Gospels, those are the first words out of the mouth of an angel when an angel appears to a human being. So when you get, for example, the angels appearing to the shepherds at Christmas, when you get the angels at the tomb, they all lead with, do not be afraid, fear not, right? I am not some terrifying heavenly thing. I'm here with good news. Um, and so it is here for Jesus, right? I'm not a ghost or whatever you think I am. I am. I'm God. Don't worry. Um, and so he gets in the boat. And then, of course, we demonstrate the power over creation because as soon as he gets in the boat, the wind ceases, right? Reminds us of the calming of the storm, which is a different episode um, because in the calming of the storm elsewhere in the Gospels, Jesus is already in the boat, but he's asleep. And that's a I think a Jonah connection and less of a Exodus and Moses connection like it is here. Um, but again, demonstrating that power over creation, again, revealing who this God actually is. And why are they utterly astounded? Because they still don't quite get it. They still haven't quite connected all the dots. They haven't quite figured out about the fish and the loaves yet. And their hearts are hardened, which is that's kind that of a harsh way to say it. I was going to say that part's probably even the worst part. I mean, they did not understand about the loaves. It's kind of like, okay, fair, because I mean, even you and I kind of had to hash it out a little bit and that's from our own training. So it's like, okay, we'll give them that. But then it says their hearts were hardened. It, it often seems to me that Jesus, when he does these teaching, when he does these teachings or when he teaches others and they don't get it, he he gets upset. And I don't mean in a sinful way. I just mean in a, I believe that the reason why people don't get Jesus's message isn't because he's some sort of ineffective teacher. It's because their hearts were hardened. So I think there's part of every, even Christians, you know, the Holy Spirit's making inroads. You have saving faith, but the, and I hate to talk too much of it like a process, but the process of becoming more and more Christ-like relying more and more on Christ is a better way to say it is a process of softening your heart to receive his message without our own interpretation, without our own, well, you know, what does it mean that who is my neighbor? Uh, uh, how many times must I forgive? It really just means to give into Christ. But let's make that connection clear for folks, because when it says they were astounded at him getting into the boat, walking on the water and making the wind cease, 
it was because they didn't understand the loaves. Well, understanding the loaves, how would that have helped them to understand what Jesus was doing? That he's God? Is that the message they're missing? I think so. I think it's, again, and this is a very human thing, right? That they, with so many, with the crowds, they're getting hung up on what they can see. They're getting hung up on the healing. They're getting hung up on the miraculous feeding. And they're kind of missing that Old Testament connection that like, why can these things actually happen? Well, it's because Jesus is actually God, right? Now you get little glimpses of this, of this understanding, even among the disciples, when you have Peter's great confession, for example, and that connected to the transfiguration, uh, which is a pretty neat connection to make. Um, but by and large, right, they just, they just don't quite get it. Um, and I think that's because, again, until the death and resurrection of Jesus, the rest of this doesn't quite make sense. And I think part of it is that most of these miracles, miraculous feedings, even resurrection from the dead, they're not unique to Jesus, right? Elijah miraculously, I mean, God through Elijah miraculously feeds the widow and her son at Zarephath back in the Old Testament. Um, Elijah raises that same widow's son from the dead. You know, when we have healings and things like that in the Old Testament, most of them around Elijah, that might be significant. Um, that's for another time. Um, but, you know, a lot of these things, you know, we've seen these miracles before. We've seen stuff like this before. If you've read the Old Testament, none of these miracles are new, except for the opening of the eyes of the blind, which is uniquely messianic. And that's another sidebar issue. Um, but I think that's why they're kind of missing it and why it's so easy for us to kind of miss it also is we get hung up on like the miracles are awesome. They're fun to watch. They're really cool. Right. And, and, you know, to have a, a, a spiritual mountaintop sort of experience is kind of cool, but that's not finally what Jesus is driving at um, right. and their hearts being hardened. You know, I don't think is, is meant to be a condemnation that the disciples are here without faith um, but I think it is kind of, as you said, that there is a little bit of a process here that, you know, you're not as a Christian going to be able to read through the scriptures and figure all of this out the first time through. It's going to take, I mean, you know, it's being a Christian is like a lifelong thing, right? And it and it takes all of our earthly lives to, to start to make sense of some of these things, Um that's, you know, that's why reading the scriptures is such an incredible thing that you can continue to do them over and over. And there's always something more to find. God always has more for you to learn and to appreciate and to rejoice in. Um, you know, that's we at Prince of Peace, we have the one year lectionary. And one of the one of the easy things to like be a little nervous about as a preacher on the one year lectionary is I just preached on that last year. Right, right. I just did that last year. Um, but I'm here to tell you, there's something new to find every single time you look into it. And even, you know, and you and I have had this experience several times doing thy strong word together, that even as we're just reading through it together, we think of new things that didn't occur to us when we were studying it, getting ready for this show, or that we didn't think of the last time we preached on it. And, and the word is just, I mean, it is the depth of the riches and the knowledge of God that we on this side of heaven will never be able to fully plumb, which is, it's just a joy. I mean, how cool that we as Christians get to do this every day of our lives. And me as a pastor, I get to do this for my job. How yeah, great is that? 
<laughs> I know it, it is. It's amazing, right? And of course, we have commentaries and resources and what, what I like to call the cloud of witnesses, like I like to call, like the Bible calls the cloud of witnesses. We have so many before us that we can learn from. And you talk about learning new things. Well, here's something that I never thought of before, and perhaps it's not important, but I just found it here in the notes. And it, it well, I'll just read. The next verse is, when they had crossed over, they came to land at Genereset, um, or Genesaret. Uh, basically, they've, they've, they're on the Sea of Galilee. They've landed here. Well, this is um, on the lake's western shore, uh, you know, so geographically, where they landed is on the lake's western shore. But if we rewind back to verse 45, when he sent them off, he told them to go to Bethsaida, which is on the northeastern end of the lake. So I don't know if that's something you came across, noticed, or even if it's even significant, but it's something that I found here in some of my research and thought, huh, I wonder what that, if anything, has anything to do with what's going on. You no, know, it absolutely does. Um, and that's such a neat, I mean, even if all you do is you do like family circus style with a map of Jerusalem and the surrounding areas and follow, just pick one gospel and make your little dotted line for all the places that Jesus goes, it is absolutely on purpose. Because what we're going to do here in Gennesaret is contrast the multitude of healings that happen at Gennesaret with, I think, I think this is why, or at least partly why, back at the beginning of this chapter, when we had some healings in Nazareth, I think it was the beginning of chapter six, there's there's just a few healings, right? Oh yeah, that's where you get a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and so on. And they healed so few because he could do no mighty work there. Well, now we're in a new place and we're going to contrast that. So we, we sort of turn around and go back to Gennesaret, or at least in that general direction. Um, we kind of veer off a little bit, I think, to set up that contrast. Well, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, and and when he gets out, let's keep reading verse 54. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came in villages, cities or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. That's the end of chapter six, the end of our text for this morning. We're getting pretty close to the end of the show. But this section right here, I mean, wherever Jesus went, he was being surrounded by people in the absolute worst moments of their life. Now, (laughs) one of the things as I was growing up, I wanted to be uh, in law enforcement. And so that's what my first degree is in, applied criminology, criminal justice, Um. But the closer I got to graduating and the more interaction I had with people in law enforcement, and boy, we need to pray for them heavily. But you rarely get invited to the good parts of people's lives. Usually when you're there, it's bad news. Well, (laughs) that's kind of what's happening with Jesus. And it it happens with pastors. We get to come to both good and bad, and we're grateful for that ministry. But, But think about it. Jesus cannot go even to tell the good news without people clogging up the way with the sick and the possessed and the dying. And this, I think, is Jesus's view of this world. And, and you know, th- I think this is why we see God's compassion so greatly in the things that Jesus does, because even though these things are kind of off mission, they're like, they're like, more like side quests than Jesus's main quest. <laughs> and yet 
he 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 com- he completes them because of his great compassion for his people. I, I don't know. I just I just I'm just thinking about what it would be like to be right next to Jesus and seeing this. It probably would be kind of discouraging because every even though Jesus is healing the people, every time you turn around, there's another sick person, and it never seems to end. Yeah, and that's I mean, especially the disciples, right? They they even express their frustration in a few places in the Gospels that um, okay, look, like this is this is kind of a waste of time. Um, if this son of man thing that you're talking about is real, let's get a move on and, and just get to that part of the story, right? It's um, right. Are you now going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Yeah, right, exactly, right. exactly. And and I think one of the things that we can take great comfort in, in a little, even just in a little passage like this, these last handful of verses here, is even even the people on their beds, right? Wherever he came that he came very precisely to seek and save the lost, right? Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came that they might have life and life abundantly, right? Um, and, and all these sorts of things that we see, right? And again, as I mentioned before, there is no promise of earthly healing, right? Healing on this side of heaven. Um, there's no promise that that will happen to everyone, uh, or that it will even happen to anyone. But what we are demonstrating, I think, all the way through when we see these instances of God's compassion in Christ, that his salvation, his healing, both now and in eternity, is truly for everyone, regardless of which town you live in or what your particular affliction is. Jesus has what you need. And um, and this, you know, they recognize him and they run about the whole region and they bring people to Jesus. There's, there's, I mean, there's so much going on just in these few verses that they recognize him. I think that we veered off and kind of went back to where we came from, at least in that general direction. I think people have been talking about the fishes and the loaves. Mm. I think word is mm-hmm. spreading. I think that's how they recognize him. And they, they go about and they do this, right? What is the model of mission work and outreach? in the scriptures, like Philip and Nathaniel, like this right here, come and see. And if you can't come and see for yourself, if you're stuck to your bed, then we'll just bring you on your bed. We'll just and take if you. we have to lower you down through the roof, we'll do that too, right? Mm. And as pastors, right, if you can't come to church, we will bring church to you, right? That's how important Jesus is and how universal his salvation can be right? That he really does have what you need, no matter what your circumstance is. I would be remiss. I'm kind of an Old Testament guy. I would be remiss if I didn't mention this last Old Testament reference in verse 56, the fringe of his garment. We might think, and rightly so, of the woman with the flow of blood who seeks and says, if I can just touch the fringe of his garment, I'll be made well. I think that's in Mark, uh, let me think, Mark chapter five. Um, But that's also a unique word, that word for fringe. In the Old Testament, it's that same word that talks about the fringe of the robe that the priest wears. Um, so that so there is an aspect when we kind of tie those things together, that we're seeing Jesus not only as good shepherd, but now as high priest, um, which is a neat little Old Testament connection to make as well. Well, that's where we're going to have to leave it, but it's certainly a great connection. I'd like to thank my guest this morning, the Reverend Roger Mullet. He's the pastor of Prince of Peace Lutheran Church in Buffalo, Wyoming. Thanks, Pastor, for being on the show. Uh, Always glad to be with you. Thank you so much. 
Hey, folks, tomorrow we do move into chapter seven. Tensions erupt as Jesus faces criticism from the Pharisees about his disciples' failure to observe ritual hand washing before meals. Jesus is going to accuse them of hypocrisy. We'll talk about that and a lot more tomorrow. So until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong word.